You're listening to a recent Abbey Theatre talk. You can get more information on future talks in the series by visiting www.abbeytheatre.ie. Thank you, Lisa. She'll not be enlightened listening to me. The only thing I learn in life is like I'm fucked up. And you're not supposed to say that when you're on the stage. You're allowed to say it in the mirror, in the morning, you know. You look at yourself and say, you fucking idiot. Now look what you did. You should have never accepted that invitation. Anyway, I'm here. Do you know who I miss? Uh, John Moriarty. I don't know if any of you know him or remember him. He was a philosopher in Kerry. People used to say he was a philosopher, like you'd kind of understand what he was talking about. You couldn't understand a word he was saying. <laughs> he taught complete gobbledygook. But it was a gobbledygook that drew you in to a kind of a, a sense of his authentic presence, you know? And um, I do miss him. We did, we did a, a lament for him about four, four years ago, just when he died down in Sheamus in Kerry. And we just did a lament for him. And... Uh, I'm going down there tomorrow, and I do miss him as a human being in the world, because he could draw you into a presence that had no manners to it, you know, it was just... He used to say things like... Um, he used to talk about the herons, you know, the, all the, the wilderness, you see, all the animals out there at the lake. And he'd say, I saw a heron there now, he was standing at the lake. And I wanted to fall into his heron silence, you know. And he was saying, like, a philosopher falling into his heron silence, for fuck's sake, like, what's he talking about, you know? But I think the best way to think about Moriarty was he was a great poet. He was a great poet. And the tradition in Ireland was poetry, the bard. The tradition was standing there and declaring. And Moriarty used to do that even in, in, in English. Like, even though he was talking English, he was talking Irish. You know, there's some people talk Irish and they're talking English. Yeah. If you know what I mean, on the radio, that's all kind of... You might as well be saying, how you going, cool man, great dude, Gormagut. That kind of modern, but like, what he did was he, he kind of embodied some sort of ancient 16th century poet, bard. And he'd say, he said one time that the heron, the same fella, he said, the heron came to my door one time. And I opened the door and I was talking to him. And I was a long time there talking. And when the heron was gone, there was a neighbor woman and she'd been looking out the window. And she came down to my door. And she said, I see you were talking to the heron. I said, I was. She said, what did he say? I said, what do you think he said? She said, I don't know. I said, neither do I. <laughs> that was the poet. And there was another lovely thing he used to say. He used to say about, about Young, Carl Young. He would say that Carl Young said that if you look outside, you dream. And if you look inside, you wake up, you know? 
And Moriarty used to say, he'd say, he'd say, I'm sitting here, and that spider in the creel is dreaming. And the birds out on the white thorn bush outside the window are dreaming. And the heron up on Mongerton Mountain is dreaming. Under the stars, we're all dreaming. I'm dreaming you, and you're dreaming me. And you are dreaming me now, and I'm dreaming you. And after 40 minutes, it'll all be over. Yeah, it'll never have happened. It'll have faded into what we call the past. But what's the past? Do you know? I remember seeing people on this stage, great actors, who are now gone, you know? And I know that, like, they always say there's ghosts in theatres. And I can't walk around this place without remembering, standing on the wings for different plays and watching beautiful actors who are now gone. Those, I'll only mention one. I could mention 20, and you'd know 20 yourselves. You know, da David Kelly and loads of people. But I remember Tom Murphy, the young boy Murphy. He was a lovely young man. He was in a play of mine, Sour Grapes, and he was on this stage, must have been, I don't know, 20 years ago. And he was taken away very quickly. And it's a funny thing that, that theatres, I think one of the things that attracts us to them is that they are full of ghosts. And I've been in theatres like this on my own at night when you'd be the last to go home. And you'd find it hard to leave, do you know? There's times you'd find it hard to leave. It's almost as if you're in the presence of something very powerful and very good. And that's why I think people come to theatre. I think they come for that presence. I think they come because the best you can get out of theatre is Moriarty. You know, Ireland didn't have a high culture. I go to Warsaw and I see the opera. It's very beautiful. I see paintings. If you put them on in Cavan, they'd say, if they saw Picasso, remember a fellow in Cavan one time, this is the truth, and I had a Picasso on the wall, and he looked at it, you know, the cubist thing with the funny faces. This countryman was in my house, and he looked at it, Jesus, he says, if you had an eye like that, you'd have to go to the clinic. <laughs> you know. We're peasants. We're peasants. There's no point in suggesting that we've been, you know, doing classical dance and opera for 200 years. We haven't. But there's one thing in all our colonial days we held on to, and that was to almost embody all our cathedrals, all our painting, all our operas, into just one man, one woman that could stand up and tell a story. That power of the shanaki, the power of presence, is something that I think Moriarty had, and I so miss it. Because when we take on the manners of a bigger culture, whether it's American or British or anywhere, we lose our presence, you know? I was thinking this last night. 
There was one thing about the Hanging Gardens that I think wasn't made enough of by the critics. I'd love, I live in the country. I live in the country in Leitrim and then in Cavan and sometimes in, in Monaghan. And I do read sometimes the reviews from Dublin Theatre. And sometimes when you'd be reading the reviews, you'd think, Jesus, theatre in Dublin is kind of boring. And then you come to the theatre and you realise the fucking critics are boring. <laughs> the plays are fantastic. There was one thing that just didn't catch their eye, I think, enough, is the performance of Niall Buggy. On the stage tonight, or any other night, until that show closes, you could cross oceans to see it. Because, like, McGuinness is a master of language. He's like Elizabethan. He can, he can write beautifully sparse, pure language. But what your man does, what Neil Buggy does, is he just embodies it without acting. And really and truly, I was there last night, and you see, you see Boggy on the stage for, I don't know, the first hour and 15 minutes, nearly non-stop. It's almost naked. It's almost looking at somebody naked. A, a sense that he's not acting. You know? Like if I say, if I say a Shakespeare line, like, let me not to the marriage of... Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment. Love is not love which alters. Oh, that's shite, you know. <laughs> but if I was on the pillow with my beloved and I said, I love those lines, you know, hot lines. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment. Love is not love which alters. When an alteration finds. Do you know what I mean? She might kiss me. <laughs> she might like us. I'm being truthful. And an actor like Mr. Buggy can get that onto the stage, that presence. And everything drifts away. The kind of psychology of the play, the whole colour of everything, you're absorbed into being close to a human being. <coughs> and that, I also think, is the power of the National Theatre, because it embodies that one single thing we had as peasants, to keep all our faith, all our spirituality, all our imagination, all our paintings, all our Picassos, all our cathedrals, in just one story, one person. The other actors around in the Hanging Garden play beautiful parts. They play daughter and sons and wife. And they sing tunes that we all recognize from our own family of dysfunction. But nothing captures your heart more than that central presentation of presence. And that's what Peter Brook used to say, like the, the, the whole theater is just actor and audience. It's just presence. It's like me being present to you now. That's all. As a collaboration, that we are all present. And that no matter how we think about John Moriarty or actors who have passed away, no matter how we realize that even this will pass, this moment will pass, it'll be gone, and we go out into the street. But in some sense, if for 20 minutes 
if for an hour and a half at a play, we allow ourselves to become present to the performance, then we're doing something very profound. We're doing something that you couldn't pay for in therapy. We're becoming enlightened, actually. That's what they say it's all about, I think. That's what my therapist tells me. <laughs> but you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe her. <laughs> Not that she's a woman, I don't mean it like that now. I mean, my lady wife is a woman, and I love her very deeply. And you all know that I left, and it was because of a dishwasher, so I'm not going to go through that. <laughs> but one of the big experiences of life is that you're a gobshite. You know, I mean, I know, I used to say it to myself privately in the mirror when I was 15, and now I'm in front of an audience in the Peacock Theatre, and I'm saying the same thing. It doesn't change. I went, can you imagine me going off at 50 thinking like I might have another life? Heading for Paris, and ending in Mullingar. Do you know what I mean? Can you imagine me heading off in 2007? Like, now that the Celtic Tiger is well established, it'd be safe to go. You know, there's money out there now. Ooh, ha <laughs> ya yeah, And I got there. They gave me, I had, I had an apartment, a Celtic Tiger apartment. There was a door, the door into it was supposed to be a fire door, didn't work. And then there was, there was curtains over the window here, and I, I pulled them twice and they came down. They were stuck into, you know, that plasterboard stuff. That's what they were stuck into. And then when you, oh, this was 250,000 euros, this apartment, by the way. Not that I spent that money on it. I just paid the rent. But I don't know what happened to the fella that owned it. He wouldn't be a happy man now. When you opened the glass doors there, there was a little railing. They called it the balcony. <laughs> like, it was, a, it was a railing instead of a windowsill. It was called the balcony. <laughs> and it looked out on the breaker's yard in Mullingar. Beautiful, beautiful, at the sound of it in the morning, lovely. And there was, I was always nervous because, you know, a toilet door is always supposed to have a kind of a, a safety lock on it so you wouldn't get caught in it. And I noticed this had the same old little keys and locks as all the doors to the bedrooms, and they weren't closing properly. So I was very careful never to close the door of the, the bathroom. And then my daughter was with me, but she was all right, because like, there's a strange thing about teenage girls. They don't like closing doors of bathrooms. They really don't. But anyway, I'd have my shower when she was out of school, afternoon, and I was always careful, except for once. There was one afternoon, it was in November, and I was listening to Joe Duffy, as one does. And, uh, you know, I'd be in the bedroom taking off the clothes because of Joe. I couldn't let go of him. You know that way with Joe, you know, and he's just one more question to ask about what she looked like in the coffin or how depressed you were. And you're just, you're waiting for the fellow on the other end of the line to have the nervous breakdowns. You didn't. <laughs> showers are on your lips. And then you, in you go to the showers and, jeez, that's good today, Joe. And, uh, and then you go, oh, fuck, I'm after closing the door. <laughs> Automatically, do you know? And you say, don't panic, it'll be all right. Wait till you get out, finish. No, no, don't do it now, but don't panic. Just do it slowly. <laughs> Did it open? No. I was stuck inside, I had no clothes on me, like I had no clothes on me, nothing. I had no towel. <laughs> a tidy person, like a lady type person, would probably bring the towel in with her, even though she was naked, but a man wouldn't. 
Walked in like a gobshite, closed the door, locked it. There I am. Now, I'm in the toilet with no clothes on. That's fucking marvellous. There, uh, there was one of these brushes. You know the mops? You'd buy them now for 2 50 in the pound shop. And you take off the top of the rubber, and it's a cylinder inside. I came to Mullingar thinking, you know, I was Don Quixote. <laughs> All them windmills in Leitrim. And I thought, your man goes off in search of the beautiful woman, so I'll go to Mullingar and I'll find a beautiful old Polish girl there now. And that's where me Don Quixote ended up. And I says to myself, you see, I'd only one go at it. I knew, you know, if you lanced it like with good speed and don't hesitate at the last moment, it just might. I hope it's the Celtic Tiger door. <laughs> and it was. <laughs> I tell you, it would have gone through an egg box quicker. <laughs> it was like an egg box inside. Me pine, pla pine door, Celtic Tiger. It went straight through and I was able to crawl like that with my hands and I made a hole big enough that I came out. <laughs> so, that was my experience of the Celtic tiger. <laughs> Realising I was a gobshite. And I think the other, there was a, I used to say, I used to say, I was like, this is, I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but this is a true story. When I, I used to be, at one stage, um, a priest, and uh, there was a fellow in Cork, and Cork used to have the Corpus Christi procession, and a different parish would take it over every year. And there was a little fellow from Ballyfahan, a little parish priest, and he found himself under the canopy one year, going down Patrick Street with the monstrance and them all singing, you know, and hundreds of thousands of people, and he's terrified. And the curate came up to him, and he said, we forgot the host. <laughs> and he said, Jesus, he says, we always fucking forget something. <laughs> and I, I, I think we all feel that. I think we all, when we get into the sense of trying to be mannerly, trying to behave well, we get into this sense that we can never do it right. We fail all the time. And I suppose my experience was that I failed, but I was forgiven. My experience was that we all fail, and it's okay. And the fear of failure is what keeps us kind of isolated from ourselves. And when you begin to touch yourself, when you become present, you become present with all the kind of failures of your life. So you're running away from your failures, you're only running away. So the beginning of wisdom is that kind of realization, Jesus, I am a right fucking gumshade anyway. And that's what I think the theater gives us. And that's what the play gave me last night. And I'm going to read you, can I read you a little bit of the book? Would that be okay? Right. I'll read you a little bit of the book. And about, about being in Mullingar, you know, when I escaped from Leitrim, and I was in Mullingar. Oh, I was cycling around, I thought it was a great fella, until the crash came. 
and that put the smile on the other side of Harding's face, as they said in Cavan. <laughs> that put manners on him. That's what they say in Cavan. When the crash came, I had nothing to protect me. I was in Mullingar when Lehman Brothers collapsed, though I didn't know what it meant. And I was in Mullingar when Brian Lenehan and the rest of the government had their notorious midnight meeting about bailing out all the banks in Ireland, though I didn't know what that meant either. All I knew was that since I had come to Mullingar in 2006, the town had been buzzing day and night with trade and entertainment. The shops were always full. The queues in the supermarkets were amazing. The amount of cheese alone that women were putting into their big trolleys. You wouldn't believe it. Like two and three hundred euros of groceries. The taxis never stopped, day and night. Dominic Street at the weekend was like downtown Manhattan. I went to the doctor one afternoon because I had an ear infection. And I mentioned to him that I wasn't feeling well. I was feeling rather anxious about all the news on the television. He said it was the stock exchange. No. That's the wife. I'll ring her later. He said half the people in his waiting room were there because of the stock exchange. They're all worried, he said. Everyone's worried. That makes people ill. Numbers were flashing on the television screens all day. Graphs that nobody could decode. There was a sense that some great tribulation was crossing the face of the earth and would soon strike Mullingar. And sometimes fear of the future used to tighten the muscles in my heart. I used to get a pain down here and a pain in my chest. And in the post office, I was nearly going to share this with a woman who was in the queue beside me. But then she had her own worries. If I hear any more guff on the television about the banks, she says, I'll throw the set out the fucking window. <laughs> I could tell she was a smoker from her small little breaths. She said, Chorus was supposed to come to me at Thursday to change over to the digital and give me a recorder box so I can watch EastEnders when I'm on my own in the mornings in the house, when it's quiet. But did they come? No. She said, if it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> she said, my husband was laid off a Friday. He's in the bed this morning. I don't know whether to call him or to let him lie there all day. And I got stuck with the grandchild yesterday because my daughter was away at the match. And the child is just getting more attached to me. And I don't want to be landed with that, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and the boss man has that child pure spile, pure ruined, she says. And then her phone rang. And she took it up and she said, oh, she says, so you're up at last. And I presume that was himself, the boss man. Yeah, she said, I see you now. She looked out the window. I'll come over to you in a minute. And she turned to me and she gave me 50 cents and she says, just put a stamp on that like a good man. <laughs> and after the post office, I cycled towards the bank through a heavy shower. And I felt consoled that on the surface, Mullingar was still unchanged. It still rained on Pierce Street. Someone in the hardware store still put the gas cylinders outside the front door each morning. 
Old men still walked their little mots along the canal. People still smoked cigarettes on the streets. And in coffee shops, young women from Lithuania still made excellent mochas. Oil lorries still cruised around the housing estates, filling up green oil tanks for the winter. And Sky News still carried reports of subprime lenders and the quake and stock markets of the world. When I came to Mullingar first, two years earlier, I bought rabbit's ears for a television set. Now I was getting high definition digital images on a 32-inch screen for 500 channels. But they were only wiring me every channel to more anxiety about the economic state of the world. As I queued in the bank, I strained my neck to absorb breaking news from the flat screen near the ceiling. Apparently, Irish bank shares were crashing, going south for winter. Over 20 years, I put every penny I ever saved into the banks. And I felt helpless now, like someone on the Titanic in steerage, listening to dispatches from the bridge. Everything's all right, we're just getting some life boats for ourselves. <laughs> Out on Dominic Street, I unlocked my bike, and I noted that the big fat purple cloud was still hanging in the sky. I says to myself, either I was about to be drenched again in another shocking downpour of rain, or else maybe a spaceship was going to emerge and zap Mullingar to dust, and I didn't care which it was. There was a Romanian man with an accordion. He positioned himself on the stone outside the Ulster Bank, and he was playing the accordion, a waltz. I recognised it. It was the opening of The Godfather. I says, you've some sense of humour. <laughs> he says, I don't speak English. <laughs> I decided to cycle straight home and listen to music on my iPod while I cycled. And then to ruin an already unpleasant day, my iPod wouldn't work. I mean, when the bank teller had explained to me that my 20,000 euros a shares were worth nothing, I accepted it as if I was the guilty one, as if I was a schoolboy, had done something stupid. I was just embarrassed that he was talking so loud that the people behind me would hear him, and that when I turned round, they'd go, oh, you're a fucking eagle, aren't you? <laughs> but I couldn't bear my little iPod not working. I just couldn't bear it. So when I got home, I phoned a customer support line. I do like to phone the customer support lines like they're much nicer than Joe Duffy. Joe, Joe is okay if you're angry, but if you want a nice, calm, soothing voice, ring your owl aircom girl. <laughs> Hello, this is Louise. Hello, Louise. <laughs> anyway, she spoke to me in a gentle voice, and she spoke with great kindness. And I said, I said, Apple has never let me down before, ever. And she seemed to understand me, like completely, totally. I tried to spell Mullingar for her, <laughs> so she could organize a courier to collect the iPod. 
Sending a truck to collect an iPod seemed a little extravagant, but I said nothing. And since she didn't seem to know where Mullingar was, I asked her where was she speaking from. <laughs> Bangalore, she says. <laughs> her gentle voice touched me. It touched a chord in me because, as I told her, I was actually on the Bangalore Express ten years earlier. I was actually on the Bangalore Express one day when there was a famous singer on it, a singer called Gango by Hangal. Really big singer. Now, this woman, she was in her 80s. She'd sung for Nehru and she'd sung for Gandhi. She was famous all over India. And there she was in the compartment opposite me. And when she, she had big damn glasses like the tractor lamps. And when she took them off then in the evening and she unwound her hair, big green sari, and she lay down to sleep, you could see she was a beautiful, beautiful woman. I wanted to tell the woman on the other end of the phone. And then I thought maybe I'd ask her, does she sing, you know? And then I thought that'd be too much of a chat up line, even at a distance of 5,000 miles. <laughs> but as she went on speaking about the iPod and the truck and the small print of our contractual agreement, I found her voice so kind and calming that I was overwhelmed with all the things I wanted to tell her. I wanted to tell her that the budget in Ireland had exhausted me. <laughs> I wanted to tell her that sorrow comes with age. It's a sadness I feel every morning. I wanted to tell her that I dreaded old age and that I saw the fear of death in other people's faces all the time. I wanted to tell her that I felt sometimes sad that men run away from their loved ones in late middle age because they're afraid of death. And they can't admit it, and then they end up in self-centered apartments and they die anyway. I wanted to tell her that if she was ever in the Sherlock Holmes restaurant in Mumbai, try the Vindaloo Curry, it's brilliant. And I wanted to tell her that the first time I ever made love was in Mayo with an American. And I can still remember the day and the date distinctly because it was Halloween, the very same day that a helicopter landed in Mount Joy Jail and flew away with three IRA prisoners in 1973. And I lost my virginity. <laughs> my American girlfriend of the day used to have a, she had a sticker on her rucksack, make love not war. And we took that as a sign. And we drove each other into a frenzy of joy between the sheets of a small hotel in Lewisburg that evening, listening to Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan still sings his songs in the iTunes library. Although it's a long time ago since me and the American went to London to hear him live. A long time ago since the two of us were there with our little candles singing Forever Young. And now I had no iPod. No Bob Dylan, and no iTunes. I wanted to tell her that I was all washed up in Mullingar. I felt an outcast from my own youth, and I wanted to tell her that each time I saw the slopes of Leitrim Hills with the snow, it makes me sorrowful, because we're made of dust and the snow will be there when we're all gone. I wanted to tell her that I loved India. I'm a great admirer of the Buddha ideas. 
And yet my heart always melts if I go into a Catholic church and I see an icon of the Virgin Mary. See, on Sunday evenings when I was in my 20s, I used to see young students in Maynooth, clerical students, return to the seminary from wandering the streets of Dublin. And they'd have little bags with them, little plastic bags of old lamps and bric-a-brac and doilies and, and posters they had bought in the dandelion market. They were trying to warm up the rooms. They were trying to find a substitute for an intimate life. And they'd gather on winter evenings to chant Salve Regina. Salve Regina, Mater Misericordiae. In the vaulted church of the seminary, 500 men, boys. I watched them, and I was one of them. Sorrowful boys that lingered on the edge of the world where they could never belong, clutching to the hope of some foggy kindness from heaven, because back then we didn't, we didn't imagine being able to have digital telephones and iPods and talk to people in Bangalore. So we dreamed of other heavens in the future. I wanted to tell her that when I had been on the Bangalore Express 10 years earlier, I was so in love that I thought it would never end. But it did. It ended. I think what theatre does is it reminds me of who I am beyond being Michael Harding for 60 years. It allows something inside me to come to the surface, which is a presence. And I get it from the actor who's present on the stage. The actor commits an act of generosity to an audience. They give themselves in their presence, and that helps me be more human. Heidegger says, I love quoting this, but Heidegger said, I cannot be human without you. I say it all the time. I would say it on the pillow, I'd say it to a lover, I'd say it to a child, I cannot be human without you. You make me human. And I feel it every time I come into the theatre. And that's why if you go to the Hanging Gardens, you're going to have a beautiful experience. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You'll find many more Abbey Theatre talks available to listen back to along with details of future talks in the series by visiting our website www.abbeytheatre.ie.